It's Amy's Table, a girl's guide to living with Amy Tobin on Q102. Pull up a chair and join us. For some reason, I think that there is nothing that tastes better than campfire cooking over an open fire or grilling or just simply sitting around a fire. And my guest today is Paula Marcoux. She is the author of the book, Cooking with Fire, From Roasting on a Spit to Baking in a Tenure, I think is how you say it, Rediscovered Techniques and Recipes that Capture the Flavors of Wood-Fired Cooking. Welcome, Paula. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Well, I love the whole concept of your book, and I think it's so interesting that you're not only a food writer, but a former archaeologist, and it sort of all goes together. I think cooking with fire is when food became a little more interesting to us as humans, didn't it? Definitely, and also a lot more nutritious, but that was a really long time ago. That's 1.9 million years ago. <laughs> the latest uh, sort of research shows us, so we don't have too much memory back before that. Uh, what we, what the major transition has been is us stopping cooking with fire, and that's only a couple generations ago. Everybody in the world cooked with fire until just a couple generations ago. So we're the first people, we're the aberrant ones who have given up on that technology, and I think that's why it tastes so good to you. You're going back to uh, back to your roots and back to your great grandmothers and great great grandmothers' cuisine. Sure, something a little bit more uh, ingrained in us. But so was it electricity that made us all? Uh, well, it was a, a series of fuel shortages, really, over thousands of years, but culminating in the mid-19th century with the Industrial Revolution, when uh, uh, fuel was being used uh, well west, wherever people went in this country um, as people were moving westward. And so the invention of the wood-fired cast-iron cook stove really closed up people's chimneys for good, pretty much. Mm-hmm. Um, people really welcomed it as an advance in technology, and it was and it's certainly a fuel saver, but uh, culinarily, uh, you can cook a lot of great things with a, with a cast-iron cook stove, no doubt, but mm-hmm. a few things you can't do very well, and that's roasting meat and, uh, or roasting really anything over an open, open coals, and uh, baking. Baking really took a nosedive uh, in the cast-iron cook stove days, so we lost a lot when, uh, when that a open hearth and brick oven cooking went out the window in this country. Well, you know, in your book, not only do you have so many recipes, but you also have ways that you can sort of DIY cook with your own fire. And I'm looking at these backyard, um, you know, sort of brick ovens, and they're uh, it's just so amazing. And this is a project I'd like to undertake. But the first picture that you show, the oven already in your house, it looks as though it's a fireplace. So well, for a lot of people uh, in the Northeast, uh, they have may have uh, fireplaces and even brick ovens in their houses uh, if they live in an older house. Um, that's uh, it's not something everyone has. I don't have one in my house, but when I've gotten to use them, and often they're just disregarded things inside people's chimneys, mm-hmm. um, they're just wonderful to use. So I just want to bring that. At, point people's attention towards that in case they have one and are just ignoring it. Some people store things in it, or there's just old junk in it from God knows when, or maybe some um, heating ducts have been put up through it, but they can be restored, and they bake as sweetly as any oven that can be made nowadays, for sure. And if you have it in your house, it's very very convenient. So it's that sort of square opening beside the main fireplace that could, in fact, be an original oven. That's right, yeah. yeah. But what about the fireplace itself? Could we... You know, cooking in our yeah. fireplace. 
Absolutely, yes. Um, even the tiniest little fireplace, if, as long as you can draw uh, the smoke out of your house, <laughs> cooking, um, there's uh, so many recipes that are just, you know, very easy to cook in a very small hearth or a large one for that matter. But, I mean, just using two bricks and a very small um, grill grate that you just take out of a grill, like a hibachi grate or any kind of um, sturdy grate, Put it across two bricks and shovel in some coals from your uh, fireplace fire under that, and you can make you know a delicious steak or um, grill some vegetables or whatever you'd like to do. It's no different than grilling on a, a grill outdoors, except honestly, um, a lot better. You have the coals are can often be very close to the what you're cooking and mm-hmm. um, create just a really really um, nice sear and delicious flavor. And then once again, right in your house, it could be just in your living room or your kitchen or your uh, dining room. Uh, it's very, very handy and something that people far too often just sort of let slide. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I love that. I'm very inspired by that idea. Well, one of the things that I just want so badly is a wood-fired oven in my backyard. And you are giving, in the book, step-by-step instructions. I want to ask you, I know this is a hard question to answer, but how much would it cost for the average, to build your own DIY average uh, wood-fired oven in your backyard? Well, it doesn't really need to be expensive at all. Uh, I have a number of them in my yard that I've built for maybe $50 each um, wow. because I'm a big scrounger. Um, the only part that I usually buy, and this re- completely relates to the size of your oven uh, in terms of the cost, how the cost works out, but I buy um, refractory fire brick for the hearth, the, the baking floor where the bread goes, um, because it holds the heat so well. It has, an, and an e- it has a very nice even release of the heat and stores it up well. Um, so those I get from a masonry supply store, and they'll run you from 50 to $100 depending on the size of the oven. The rest of my ovens are made up out of clay and sand and rocks and wood, uh, and then you need some kind of roof. Uh, that's what the wood is for, either supporting the oven or for making the, uh, the uh, roof frame. Because mm-hmm. um, I use clay mortar, um, that has to be sheltered from, from the weather to keep it from you know, washing out. And also in the Northeast, we have prob- trouble with um, for the freeze-thaw cycle if a clay mortar gets wet soak through and then um, freezes, it'll crack and just sort of melt away and break. So just a, it doesn't have to be encompassing roof, but just a roof to keep the worst of the rain and snow off it. Sure. Um, people do, however, spend many thousands of dollars. I know. They would like to have a fancy, um, beautiful one that's sort of pre-made, uh, and they're very good um, manufacturers, but you might spend, you know, $30,000 if you get one that's all um, copper-clad and lovely. It's also very trouble-free to work. Um, and, you know, you could use it almost as a commercial bakery, uh, or you could use it as a commercial bakery. Uh, but uh, there's, that's just to say there's a large range of choices, and I try to give people full, uh, full access to that range in the book because uh, I, I hate the idea of someone spending a lot of money on something they're never going to use yeah. um, or just use very seldom when they could have taken a route that would maybe put them more in touch with the actual oven by, say, building it, uh, and then be more in, in concert with the way that they actually want to go about cooking or baking. Plus, I also point out that there are a number of great ways to bake bread that don't involve building an oven at all. Um, using a cast iron um, bake kettle or Dutch oven, which are still being made today um, and available in this country, or sometimes you can find them at tag sales or whatever, um, they have a very tight-fitting lid, so when you put the and you heat them up over coals of your campfire or your fireplace fire until the iron is pretty hot, you put your lump of risen dough in there and close the lid up 
and put it down on a little bed of coals, maybe covered with some ashes so that it's not too, too hot. And then you put coals on the lid of this pot. And it's very well sealed up so that the loaf stays nice and clean inside. But it bakes really beautifully. The chamber is just perfect size for the bread, so you get just the right steaminess, a very nice thin crust, and a really, really delicious flavor. Oh, I'm just... Cost, you know, few bucks and uh, last you for your whole life if you're careful and don't drop it onto a concrete surface. Uh, <laughs> Sounds and, like that uh, has, you have experience with that. <laughs> uh, no, no, I'm just dread, dread afeard of it. I'm really afraid that that could happen um, because uh, um, cast iron is very brittle. Uh, it's very, very strong, but brittle. So you might drop a wrought iron thing like a fire shovel uh, and it won't break. But right, something but this cast iron, uh, is a brittle has a brittleness to it that, and you'll also see that with chips or cracks and very often you can use the things anyway unless it's right in the bottom yeah if you're just joining us we're speaking with paula marcu about her beautiful book cooking with fire and you know the thing that's interesting is so many people now have fire pits in their backyard so you don't have to go camping to have a campfire so what are some of the more surprisingly simple things we could do in our backyard fire pit this summer oh there are so many that you can just replace your uh, sort of cheese and cracker display at your next party that you happen to have a fire pit at, replace that with making toasted cheese, uh, which involves your guests much more in creating their own appetizer and kind of lengthens and deepens that period of the meal. We sort of throw crackers and cheese out as just something to put out there. But if you cut the cheese into square or cubes, I should say, uh, rather than into slices and have some nice crusty bread, or crackers would do, but crusty bread is great for this, and maybe some zesty condiments like a chutney or mustard or just a pile of chopped scallions, um, put the cheese uh, on, impale it on the end of a stick. You can, um, you know, take your um, scout knife out and uh, put a point on a piece of maple from the woods, or you can use just a long skewer that you can even buy uh, and hold the cheese not over the flames of the fire, but over really hot coals. So push the fire aside a little bit, and usually you'll find a, if your fire's been burning more than half an hour, you'll find a little coal bed in there. Um, Sort of hold the cheese over that, and it'll begin to melt and ooze, and in the case of certain cheeses, begin to crust up and become really delicious. Uh, and as that melts, you have your cheese, have your bread slice ready, and uh, sort of just wipe that onto there, or let it drip onto there, and have, have the condiments with it, and maybe a glass of wine or beer. And as I said, it's not instant, but it's also much more gratifying and much more collaborative. And oh, it I love the best it. Aspects of toasting a marshmallow without actually having to eat a marshmallow at the end. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. S'mores are one of those things that you, you want to love them, <laughs> but not always. Oh, I love that idea, Paula. That is just so neat. And what a great way to make it interactive. I agree. That's awesome. Well, something that sounds so unexpected, but actually is the recipe that Paula is sharing with us, is baklava, campfire baklava. Now, I cannot imagine doing this in the fire, but just give us a few hints on making this a success. Well, first off, it comes, it's, it's not exactly a historical recipe. I kind of made it up, but it's based on historic techniques. Um, the Central Asian people that, were, that invented stretched-out doughs that, that baklava is made with phyllo, a stretched-out dough, and that comes from this area where people still make borek today by stretching out um, uh, just a flour water dough and then putting cheese or nice, fat, spicy lamb or all kinds of different fillings on it, and then you and butter up that packet and then p- cook it on a griddle. 
So I was thinking, well, this is where baklava comes from, too. Originally, no one knows quite when, thousands of years ago. Why don't we do that on the griddle? So basically, I, you stretch out a uh, very simple dough, and that sounds, you stretch it out really until you can almost read through it, like strudel. Mm-hmm. And it's not as hard and superhuman as it sounds. It just takes doing it a couple times. And, I mean, I've shown a lot of people how to do it, and I'm amazed how uh, people just take to it and really can make something quite creditable, even though they may never have touched a lump of dough before. Um, as long as they allow themselves the time to do it. Um, So in any case, you stretch out this dough very, very thinly, and you butter it up with melted butter and put a little filling of walnuts with a a little bit of sugar and cinnamon, maybe some cloves uh, in there, and fold it up like a little square packet, buttering each surface, much as you do when you're making baklava Mm -hmm. using dry filo that you buy, and then just cook it on a medium-hot griddle uh, over the fire, and it toasts up to be just wonderfully crispy and delicious, um, nice and crisp through and through. Cut that up and pour a honey syrup on it, really just diluted honey. Uh, and it is ha- it's just a much sort of deeper country rustic version of baklava. Uh, and it re- really something you can make sort of when you're roughing it if you really want to pretend you're not. Uh, <laughs> or you can make it just in your own kitchen on a, on a cast iron uh, griddle also. But yeah. it's something that's really fun to make outdoors because it seems to juxtapose so weirdly with uh, being out in the elements uh, eating a crispy pastry like that. I have to say, between talking about the toasted cheese and the bread and the baklava, I am quite literally salivating. And I just, I'm really (laughs) inspired by this. And so if you've got a fireplace, if you've got a backyard fire pit, if you want to build your own brick oven, there's so many recipes, tips, inspiration. And what I love is lots of photos. The book's called Cooking with Fire. And uh, you know what? Before I say the whole name again, Paula, is it Tenur? Yes, it is tenure. Very good. Okay. Cooking with fire from roasting on a spit to baking in a tenure, rediscovered techniques and recipes that capture the flavors of wood-fired cooking. And you can find more about Paula at her website, which is themagnificentleaven.com. And I'll also put a link on amy-tobin.com. But Paula, thank you so much for inspiring us into cooking with fire. Oh, thank you. I enjoyed it very much. Stick around for another helping from Amy's Table on Q102. Q! Welcome to mile 5033, the first mile of the first road trip with you and your newborn. Thankfully, your Hyundai Tucson has an available 10.25-inch infotainment screen so you can seek out the soothing sounds of nature to keep your kid calm or whatever else babies are listening to these days. And with available wireless device charging, your phone will stay powered up so you can ask the internet why the baby just made that weird gurgling sound at mile 5062. Or that scrunchy face at mile 5103. Because when it comes to navigating the new roads in life, we're thinking of every mile. The new Hyundai Tucson. It's your journey. Test drive the new Tucson at your nearest Hyundai dealer or learn more at HyundaiUSA.com. I'm not some cauldron-cooking, toad-training witch. I've got better things to do. That's why I use Shipt to save precious time. To cast your own time-saving spell, visit Shipt.com magic. That's S-H-I-P-T dot magic.